This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kasten-Smith. And last week, you all had uh, Sam and Mark's wonderful tour of the Nephilim. I hope <laughs> I hope that wasn't... Is that what we're calling that? That wonderful tour of the <laughs> Nephilim. Uh, you know, Sam, I, I, I mentioned this to you this morning, but a member of our staff... Um, I was having a conversation with them last week, and they told me that one of their family members, uh, and I was talking to him on Wednesday. So we record the podcasts on Tuesdays. I edit them on Wednesday. They come out on Thursday. And so I was talking to this uh, fellow after we'd recorded, so I knew what was going to be in there. And uh, he said that a family member of his on Monday night, he was at this home, and this family member was talking about, I've been doing some reading, and big pause, what do you know about the Nephilim? That's just really strange. <laughs> and I said, it's, I said, it's really funny that she would have asked you that. I said, because you're going to get a half an hour on the Nephilim tomorrow morning. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if they're in or clearer now, I, but they got a half an hour. I don't it. know that it's any better either, <laughs> but I do know that we've at least given them our thoughts on the Nephilim. Um, but it was more, but it was more than just that. It wasn't just the Nephilim, but it was also uh, the world before the flood that's where we kind Mm -hmm. of we kind of left things with and god shut the door of the ark (laughs) yeah um so this week we're going to be coming in to chapters seven and eight and even into chapter nine um i think that one of the things we should probably let people know is that we've done pretty much kind of a verse by verse walk through up till this point but in this particular situation i think what we're going to do is give them more kind of an overview of the flood if you if you want to go back and read every um, single detail, you know, of the flood and which animals were clean and which animals were unclean and those kinds of things, that's all there for you. You can go through and read chapter seven and eight. We certainly encourage you to do so. But um, I think that what we're going to do is kind of take you through the highlights, the things that are important from the the story mm-hmm. of the flood. Sam, if I were going to say to you, hey, symbolically and in terms of of the of the deeper meanings of what's going on in the flood where would you start us off last week we talked a little bit about you know kind of a, a preview of what we're going to talk about today which is how the ark is a picture of Jesus right. that it's in the ark it's in Jesus uh, that you find salvation and here come the waters and and God is basically going to cleanse the world and give humanity another start and so we talked last week about how God was brokenhearted, how, you know, he's looking at the sin and how human humanity is treating one another and treating his creation. And he's grieved because he knows it's one of three options, uh, really. He can either let this wickedness just continue where sin and death reign. He can completely annihilate all life um, or he can choose to do what he had set from the beginning, which is he's going to redeem all things by taking the curse and the judgment for all of this wickedness upon himself in the person of Jesus who's going to come later. God is looking at all this pain. He knows the cost of what it's going to require to redeem all of this, 
and he sets his favor on a man named Noah and his family because Noah has faith. And so God sees righteousness. You know, he's covered in God's righteousness. Right. And so he makes a covenant in the middle of – or toward the end of chapter 6 – and he tells him, he says, for behold, this is verse 17 of chapter 6, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you, and they shall be male and female of the birds. And this is where we kind of get a clue of where the flood narrative is going to go. He says, of the birds according to their kinds, and that immediately, like, what do you remember? If you if you followed the Genesis series, when he says, of the birds according to their kinds, that's intended to remind you of something. You know, back in Genesis 1 – God is creating all these things according to their kinds. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on and he says, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind, uh, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. And so God enters this covenant with Noah where he says, I'm going to spare you, get two of each kind of these animals according to their kinds, which is making you think back to creation, um, and bring them into the ark. And so what this is setting up for you is God is about to begin a new creation with the flood. Um, and that's what you find here. I want to ask a question just because it is something that's come up in conversations when I've talked with people about the flood, you know, um, mm -hmm. because, you know, if you're somebody that's uh, obviously the, the idea of Noah and the ark, that's something that's part of almost American folklore, too. We talked about this, that. Um, mm -hmm. that just people, everybody knows the story of Noah and the ark and the great flood. But when you start to talk about it with people in a, in a more serious sense, somebody that's like, I really need to understand this whole flood thing. That happened because the earth was very wicked, that God looked upon the earth and saw that it was very wicked. And he said, I'm going to do something about this. And as, as you just said, you know, he decided to do something about it, except for this remnant, because he's going to redeem that. And it seemed like the wickedness just continued on the other side. I mean, we're not necessarily going to be able mm -hmm. to get in that, but it didn't seem like the, mm -hmm. he fixed the problem at all. <laughs> and that was the, yeah. and that was the question that they had for me that I couldn't really answer because they're like, why did God do the whole flood thing if the wickedness just continued? So I, th I think – so the Bible is broken down and it gives us two pictures of a worldwide judgment. Mm -hmm. It's a good question and this might be too much of an answer more than you want. But he does two worldwide judgments. One of them is what we're talking about now. It happens in Genesis 7 and 8. The flood comes and, and destroys everything but those that are in the ark. And so from chapter 1, you have a world that's covered in water. That's At the beginning, that's the hurdle to life. You know, the earth was formless and void, and there's deep waters over the whole surface of the earth. And then God goes to work, and he brings light, and then he separates the waters into sky and sea. And then on day three, he separates the waters into land, right? Well, in the flood, he's going to destroy the earth with those waters. And so there's there's bookends that from Genesis 1 to Genesis 9 that deal with the first series before a worldwide judgment. In Genesis 10, it launches this new 
a brand new creation. Noah is the father of all mankind. We're going to see he's a lot like Adam mm-hmm. um, later on in, in, the, in this episode. Uh, but Genesis 10 introduces Babylon, the founding of a kingdom, right? And that's going to run. It's going to be the war of God's kingdom versus man's kingdom. And we'll see that next week that runs for the rest of Scripture, right? So in Genesis 10, Babylon is founded when you get to the end of the story of redemption, when God brings judgment on the earth, what does he call um, the wicked city that is being destroyed? Babylon, it's yeah. Babylon. Yeah. And so from Genesis 1 to 9, you have these bookends of water, and that's, that's, the, that's the pericope that God is having before this worldwide judgment. And it's intended to give us foresight into how our God acts. And so from Genesis 10 all the way to the end when Jesus returns and brings in the second worldwide judgment against Babel, he's, he's showing us how this is going to work, except in that creation he doesn't bring forth um, a creation that's still stuck in sin. Mm-hmm. It's a new creation that is cleansed from sin entirely. So then, the the point of the flood wouldn't be to well, I say the point of the flood. I don't want to. I don't want to make it sound like God was just trying to make a point. But um, so then, the answer to the question of why did God do a flood if the didn't fix the wicked problem, if there was wicked before and wicked afterwards, the answer is that the flood really wasn't necessarily about correcting the wickedness. Well, I mean, it definitely judges the wickedness, right. but what it does is it sends this message to humanity. This is a holy and just God, mm-hmm. you know, who who holds in his ability uh, means to judge the entire globe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, imagine had God never done that. If we, if if human beings never experienced consequences, can you imagine how wicked we would be? Mm. I mean, really. I mean, take a step back and imagine that in all of the vices and all of the wickedness that you ever did, you never came across a consequence that kind of stunned you and made you go, whoa, 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 this is this is not good. I didn't enjoy that we at all. Be, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you, we would spiral into the worst wickedness imaginable. And at this point, like right before the flood, what God is essentially saying is they did that. You know, they the thoughts of man were only evil all the time, it says, and and continuously just i mean there was nothing good about them except for noah and that's because they were without consequence and one of the other things that you see in biblical stories is like the nation of israel um you'll watch them when they don't have consequence when god shows mercy after mercy after mercy you'll watch the nation just get more and more and more and more wicked until he raises up some foreign power that makes them realize you know that their wickedness has consequences and so I think, you know, when we have the flood, we're given a glimpse of God's mercy, of God's faithfulness to his covenant, but also the fact that we serve a God who is just, who will not allow wickedness to mock him. He, his justice will not allow others to be violated without consequences. Um, and so we see that side of God out of the beginning, and I think it's a good thing for creation that we have seen that. We know we know the God to whom we will one day owe a reckoning. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, I suppose. Do you the, agree? Yeah, I, you think I, so? I do. You know, and I really haven't thought about it from that perspective. The idea that God needed to demonstrate that there was judgment as well as that there was going to be mercy and his and faithfulness to the covenant. You know, the message that Jesus had, which is 
you're going to be my disciples. We're going to follow him, um, that we're bringing in his kingdom, that idea. If the alternative to that is, or you can do whatever you want. Um, <laughs> it doesn't seem like yeah. much of a choice there. It seems kind of like, you know, human humankind being pretty lazy as we are, that we would be like, yeah, I think I'm going to take the I'm fine right here option. Um, and that, <laughs> you know, so just in, in terms of, of our own uh, – desires to to listen to the gospel even if there was no judgment would we care yeah and i one of the other things that you see again and again in scripture you know i actually and and this sunday i mentioned this in one of my sermons the entirety of the old testament is setting up you know you you learn about the character of god but one of the things that it drills into your brain i mean drills into your brain is that there's no unfailing hero in the old testament Every single character that the Bible lifts up for you in the Old Testament, you'll think, man, this guy's great. He's heroic. Look what he did. And all of them have some tragic flaw that leaves them on their face. And so, you know, think about think about the message that's given here. You, you have Adam and then humanity, you know, after the fall, humanity just gets absolutely disgusting. I mean, the only thoughts they have are continuously evil all the time. I can't even imagine. But anyway... Where that goes is God is going to give a fresh start to humanity, and he takes the very best man that's on the planet, Noah, mm-hmm. who's faithful, the one guy who's faithful on the whole planet, this preacher of righteousness, and he says, okay, I'm going to clear everything away, and we're going to start from scratch, and I'm going to take the very best man. It's not corrupted with all of Cain's descendants and all the you know sons of God and daughters of men stuff. Fresh start, and immediately they fall. Mm-hmm. And you're going to watch, you know, Abraham, fresh start, and uh, immediately he falls. Or the Israelites coming out of Egypt, fresh start, and immediately they fall. And there's this message that the Old Testament is making you desperate for someone who's not going to continue that pattern, Mm -hmm. someone who's not going to fall, someone who's going to give a new beginning, a fresh start that sticks Mm -hmm. where there's hope there. And that's answered in the pages of the New Testament Mm -hmm. with Jesus. He perfects all of this. That is true. There's, there really are no characters from the Old Testament that we can look at and say, you know, here's the guy. This is the, this is the one that's not going to let us down. Every single one of them lets us down in some respect. So um, getting back to the, what did you call it? The pericope? Pericope? What is, it's, you know, like from one verse to another. So that whole like a parenthetical, the story. Oh, okay. Basically, that's just a, the story. Oh, okay. So when we get back to the story, um, you know, we God's getting ready to execute this judgment and he gets Noah on the, you know, gets him onto the ark. Uh, where do we go from that? Yes. I mean, what, what God is doing after he makes this covenant with Noah, he sets in motion a series of events that are, when we read it, are meant to we're meant to see he's undoing in a sense he's reversing the stages of creation and so what does he do he says hey man you're going to go in the ark animals you're going to go in the ark and then you know take birds so he's working his way back from day six day five and then you get to day three what happens on day three you have a separation of waters from the skies to the seas right they hadn't rained before this and so all of a sudden, what, what are we told? The springs from the deep burst forth, and so waters are coming up, 
and from the sky, rain begins to fall. And so you can see that window is closing. The waters are now coming back together vertically, and then the waters take over even the highest mountain. And so we're going back to before, you know, like day one of creation when the waters covered the surface of the deep. And so essentially what God has done is he has totally undone creation. All of the animals, all men except for Noah and the people, the creatures on the ark, everything's been undone. All these creatures, plant life, everything's been undone. And now the waters have collapsed back to each other. Mm -hmm. And so we're back at square one, and it's really beautiful. When when the water reaches its highest point, at the end of Genesis 7, the waters reach their highest point, and the, the central verse of this story comes in Genesis 8, verse 1, when it says, God remembered Noah. And you know the english translation of that is really poor i don't i don't know what word you would replace it with but that idea of god remembering noah uh, it's not like god's in heaven and all of a sudden he hears the water boiling over and goes oh noah you know like i got to go save him that's not what this word remember means mm-hmm. it's like a deep it's the words of God, it's deep covenantal faithfulness to noah it's like when, when Jesus gives us the sacrament of communion and he says, do this in remembrance of me. That doesn't mean that when we take communion, we go, oh, Jesus, I remember that guy. Like it's, it's this almost a marital covenant, and that's what we see with Noah. And it's when God remembered Noah at the beginning of eight, now all of a sudden he's going to recreate. And you see the, the flood, the springs of the deep stop. The rains stop, the waters begin to abate, the, ma- the dry land emerges, and then when they, the ark comes to rest, then you're going to have the animals and the birds and man come back onto planet Earth. And so he is, he's recreating. It's like you can, you can see Noah is, is becoming a new Adam, and it's very, very intentional that he does this. You know, when I was looking up the the meaning of that word, uh, remember, or zakar, in uh, it's Justinius's uh, Hebrews Chalde uh, lexicon that I was looking on, they actually said that the root of that word, the origin of the word, seems to lie with this idea of pricking, piercing, penetrating. Um, that the that the when they look at how the word is actually formed, um, which is kind of an interesting idea. If that's if that's where they're taking it from, that this idea is that it's sort of an insistent or, uh, you know, uh, penetrative thing. Like it's not like a, oh, by the way, but it's a, mm-hmm. I can't get this out of my head. Yeah. It's, it's steadfast. Yeah. That's, it's, it's really cool. And so what happens if you look at that verse, it's in Genesis 8 1, it says, God remembered Noah. And then what happens? But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. Now, why is that significant? Remember what wind means? And sure, it's the, it's it's spirit, ruach. Yeah, ruach, wind, breath, spirit. And so, when God, so all of this has been kind of it seems like creation has been undone, right? Now God is going to make a new creation. He remembers Noah, and what's the first thing that happens? The ruach goes out on the surface of the waters. Well, that takes you right back to the very beginning of Genesis 1. It's, it's, it's beating into our brains. Here comes a new creation. This is another chance. And the idea is when Lamech, remember, when Lamech named his son Noah, Noah, 
It was the hope because Noah means rest. It was the hope that he's going to give us rest from the curses of the fall. Mm -hmm. He was hoping Noah would be the savior. And now you see this new creation starting and you're thinking, maybe it is. Maybe Noah's going to bring about a perfected, redeemed world. Mm -hmm. And so that it's, it's training your mind toward that end. And of course, by the end of the story, you find out, well, it's not going to be Noah. I think it's interesting too that they it says that it rained for 150 days and that the then the that the waters receded and it took 150 days for the waters to recede. So it's almost like you know we we get to this point here where God sends this wind that blows across the waters. That's really only the halfway point of Noah's time on the ark. All right, so I'm going to get into something that's going to be really hard to communicate, and maybe this needs to get chopped out. <laughs> but there's the story of Noah presents this perfect chiastic structure. And what a chiastic means, it comes from the Greek letter chi, which is an X. Um, if, you, if you know your Greek alphabet, a chi is an X. So chiastic, it's like it, it crisscrosses. And so the beginning of the story of Noah is perfectly echoed at the end of the story. And so, for example, in Genesis 6, 17, God announces the coming of the flood. Uh, but in Genesis 9, 11, at the end, he promises, I'll never send a flood again. There's going to be um, 40 days of rain, right? And then there's going to be 40 days of the water receding. There's going to be God closing the door in the beginning and Noah opening the window at the end. It's So all of this is echoes out from that center. And the very center point of this story, it's perfect. It's right, right at the middle of the X is God remembered Noah. Mm. That's why I said that's the most important verse because – and what, what it's doing is it's kind of drawing a mountain. The beginning until you get to God remembered Noah is going up one side and then when the waters recede, it's kind of going down the other side of the mountain. But the peak of the mountain is God remembered Noah. Mm. Hmm. That's really good. And that's how you know it's the most important verse. That's the way Hebrew – uh, literature works in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. You see these chiasms all over the place. It's kind of God's thumbprint, like I authored this, mm-hmm. because you see it so perfectly structured. It's also his way of telling us what the point is. <laughs> you know, it's like in, mm-hmm. in in our writings, we tend to we tend to either lead off with our point and then defend it, or we give you everything we want you to think about and then we give you the conclusion. It's like with a with a yeah. chiasm, it's it's in the middle. You know, it's like we're going to tell you a bunch of things, and then this is what this is all about. This is the most important thing. And then here's a bunch of other – it's important stuff, but it's just not the most important yeah. thing. You know, all of Scripture works by that pattern. In the beginning, you have, you know, God with man in a garden. You have the sinless man, and a bride is created from his wounds. At the end, you have a sinless paradise in a garden on a mountaintop, which is the same as Eden, God dwelling with man, and a bride created from the wounds. And so what those two ends of the Scriptures do is they come back, and the chiasm, the peak, is going to land with Jesus on another mountain, hmm. uh, suffering the cross hmm. to make the two possible. And so so even the entirety of Bible works chiastically, and you see that in the story of Noah as well. Hmm. Hmm. That's good. So now they've, you know, they, God has sent this wind that's blowing over the earth and the waters begin to subside. Where do we go from there? Well, we talked about this last week, but on Nisan 17, that's when the, the bottom of the ark comes to rest on Mount Ararat. And Nisan 17 is the same day as Jesus' resurrection. And so it's, again, Jesus' resurrection announces what? A new beginning. There's a brand new beginning. He's making all things new. We've become new creatures, new creations in Christ. 
You know, heaven is the promise of a new Jerusalem. All these things, everything is being made new. But here, it's landing even on the same day on the Hebrew calendar, Nisan 17, as the crossing of the Red Sea and the deliverance of Esther and the Jews and, again, the resurrection. There's really, really wonderful things. So they wait, and this is where Noah, now that he's on top of this mountain, he's still looking out from the ark, and floodwaters are all around and now he's wondering, is land going to emerge? And he has these tests where he sends out uh, the birds. Mm-hmm. First one he sent out was a raven, which kept going, it says, to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. Mm-hmm. So what, the, just flew until it died? Yeah, I think <laughs> – <laughs> I guess this is a really energetic it raven just, or this <laughs> – It doesn't seem like the raven came back. It's like he just took off and kept flying. But one of the things that's interesting, and this goes back to literature that's as ancient as the Hebrew Scriptures, the raven in every culture is a bad omen. We see the raven as an omen of death or danger. Um, And so the omen goes away, and then the next one, Noah's going to release a dove. Uh, But it says the dove found no place to set her foot, and so she returned to him in the ark. And so Noah waits seven more days, which, by the way, you can look at the first part of when the flood waters are going up. He waits seven days before entering the ark when the waters start falling, so it's echoing again. But seven days later, Noah sends out a dove, and this time it came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from earth. And another, you know, the symbolism, by the way, in virtually every culture – the dove symbolizes peace. Um, and here, when land emerges, God's judgment is over. He has made peace with mankind is kind of this idea. The dove also symbolizes the spirit. But the same thing comes is true for the olive branch. You know, if I say, hey, I'm going to extend an olive branch to you, it means peace. Right. And so – and that's, vir- that's true for virtually every culture, even in Greek or Egyptian cultures, ancient world, like – the olive branch was always associated with peace, and the same was true of the dove, which is kind of an interesting thing that that was seared on the memory of humanity, even going back to those days. Hmm. But he then waited another seven days and sent the dove out again, and so he didn't – basically, he kept sending the dove out until the dove didn't return. So the dove brings the olive branch. Right. Back to him. And when if, if he brings an olive branch, you know that vegetation has now emerged. Land is – there's a place for the dove to land, and now it's safe to get out of the boat. Like the lands are, are coming. Right. The floods are re- receding. It, it is interesting too that – and I mean not to – I don't necessarily feel like we have to belabor it too much. But it, it, in addition to – it doesn't just say an olive branch, does it? It says an olive leaf. And the reason I mention mm-hmm. that is that she didn't bring him a stick. She didn't, you know, the dove didn't, re- the dove actually returned <laughs> with a leaf. This idea that, okay, I found the tree and the tree had its branches and the branches had leaves. So the, the leaves had sprung forth. So there yeah. was a, so that life was actually returning. It wasn't just a, I brought you with this stick. <laughs> Look, Noah, here's a stick. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that's just pretty cool about this, and this might be a stretch. So, so brace well, we're used this to we're used to stretching on we'll, the front. We'll, end. You're, we'll just stretch it. <laughs> but I love this, and that you know when when this dove brings back the olive leaf, that was the good news. God has He's not only you know brought the floodwaters down, 
but he's bringing life back to the earth. Right. He's recreating. Right. He's giving us, you know, plants and everything else to deal with. And when Jesus gives his sermon in Matthew 25, and he's talking about the end of the world, and this is, or Matthew 24 is actually when he says this, but he's talking about how the judgment, the final judgment will be as it was in the days of Noah. One of the things that I think is really cool is the place where Jesus gives that sermon is on the Mount of Olives. And so he's going to be talking about the final judgment that's going to come down upon mankind, and he is giving that sermon. He's surrounded by all of these emblems that announced God's deliverance and mercy and peace and the first worldwide judgment. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's an accident. It's that, that, that sermon is actually called the Olivet Discourse by theologians. So that that plays a a big part in that you know he's giving this sermon on the mount of olives saying it's the final judgment will be as it was in the days of noah and here's the savior of the world surrounded by olive leaves hmm. i just think that's cool yeah. then it says that uh in the 601st year in the first month in the first day of the month the waters were dried noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold the face of the ground was dry um and then it says in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. So in other words, he, he, Noah takes a look, and yet it's another <laughs> two full months on the ark before at that, before he's told to, God tells him to exit the ark. So there, you know, that was a lot of time on the ark. I mean, if, if I had been trapped in this little boat. <laughs> <laughs> With all these animals up, doing what they cleaning do, cleaning up a lot of animal poop, you know. And, and I, <laughs> admittedly, you can just chuck this stuff over over the side of the boat, I presume, or something. Because again, we sort of have this impression that the ark comes to rest, and you know, as the story of Noah and the ark as a kid, and the door opens, and they come out, and everything's great again. But no, mm -hmm. in fact, that this was a this was a very drawn out procedure here of him sending these birds out and then taking the covering off of the ark, which I presume was done for the waterproofing. And then at that point, it's still another two months before God tells yeah. him to leave the ark. Um, do you feel like that's just a practical thing? Like it just took that long time before the ground was so muddy less, that you could then walk safely on it? Or was there something about the fact that because I'm, I'm getting kind of used to this whole thing of, well, Mark, that's actually Nissan 21 and Toyota 55 <laughs> and, you know, General Motors 12. Um, you know, it's like these significant dates. Is there a significant date here or did it just take two months for the ground to dry out? Not that. I haven't looked at that date. Okay. There might be. I, I doubt it. I think I think it's a, a an exercise in patience. Okay. I think God is preparing the world uh, for Noah to enter into. Okay. Um, that, but I'm not I mean, sure. That, it's a good question. Being being the kind of literalist that I am, I'm kind of like, yeah, it took that long. Hey, can you imagine if you had like covered the earth with water for this extended period of time and then just you take the water away? It's going to be a real slippery, muddy place for a long time after that. So, you know, it's just <laughs> it's a practical matter. Noah, it's safer for you to stay on the ark. So then he tells them that uh, he wants them to go out from the ark, take all the animals with him. And he does that. He takes his sons and his wife and his son's wife's with him. He takes all the animals out. And the very first thing that he does is he builds an altar to the Lord and takes some of every clean animal and every clean bird and offers burnt offerings. And it says, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. 
that when it says that he smelled the pleasing aroma, the the word there, and again, the trans none of the Bibles translate this literally because it wouldn't make sense to us, but. It's literally an aroma of rest. Is the the Noah's name is kind of the behind that word pleasing, but there's an aroma of rest. Like you know what the world is now not so wicked. It's it's there's a rest in the world again. Just to just to make a, a case for my uh, my favorite boys over there, the New King James again. They actually translated a soothing aroma, which I think yeah, which I think soothing is yeah. soothing is closer than pleasing, because pleasing is it smells good. Yeah, I agree, but soothing is that it is yeah. a restful type thing. So the Lord said in his heart, "I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth." Like I read that sentence several times because it seemed like. I was misreading it, even though I wasn't. God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. And then he says, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his use. Like, doesn't that mm-hmm. seem odd? It's like, okay, I'm not going to punish man anymore, but he's still wicked even from his youth. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's like a, it's kind of a weird statement. You know, normally I would think of if, if my children had been doing something bad and I had punished them. And then I would come back and say, all right, I'm never again going to punish you this way because you've learned your lesson or you should have learned your lesson (laughs) or whatever. But God says, I'm not going to curse the ground anymore because you're evil from your youth. It just seems like an odd thing for him to say. Yeah, I remember Siegfried and Roy. Do you remember when I forget which one of them got attacked um, by the the lion? Mm -hmm. But anyway, after that, you know, or tiger. But after that, there was a big outcry to not kill the tiger because it's a tiger. Of course, it's going to do that. Right. Um, you know, if you're playing with them, you have to know, like, it's a tiger. And I think that's kind of the sense, at least I take out of the statement, is God saying, you know, I'm not going to pour forth this kind of judgment for the in- their hearts are evil from from their youth. This this is what they do. They're fallen creatures. Um, and it's almost it, – it's like – resigning not to bring forth judgment before there's a door of redemption again. Well, I think you have a point there about not bringing judgment until there is a door of redemption. Because, I mean, just from looking at it, kind of this sort of average guy looking at this, I'm saying to myself, okay, so what did God think? Did God think that their intentions wouldn't be evil after this flood? They were evil before the flood, and he cursed the ground. (laughs) And now, so it's kind of like nothing has changed about man, Mm. but God still says, I will never again curse the ground. One of the things that, that we talk about, or did talk about a few weeks ago, is this idea that when God cursed the ground, um, that that was something that was going to be make the, uh, Cain's life difficult as somebody that had to deal with the ground. Mm-hmm. He was going to have to wrestle with the ground. And that curse seems to be over. So in other words, we don't really have any idea how what that meant. Like when God said, I'm going to curse the ground, we have this idea that, well, that just meant that things weren't going to go perfectly with with agriculture. Mm-hmm. It was going to be tough. It was going to be bad. It's going to be he's going to be sweating and toiling. It's this idea, and and today I would say that that must have been much you know much worse than whatever we have today. The it sounds like God mm-hmm. is saying I'm not going to do this anymore. Whatever I did in the past, that's over. That's done with. 
And so we're not really connecting with that. I do think that the you know clearly the Bible is teaching that creation is still in rebellion. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're longing to work together well. Uh, but things are still in rebellion, but there's no specific curse like the one he le- that he handed down to Cain where he's like, nothing's going to grow for okay. you. Um, I wonder also if there's a sense in which God is is sort of saying to creation, I'm not going to hold you accountable for man anymore. <laughs> it's like, you know, that there's a, yeah, maybe. there is a sense in which uh, in that word, because the word qualal kind of means um, – that it can carry a sense of dishonor or show disrespect for. So it's almost, in, in a sense, it's almost like, yes, mm-hmm. it means curse also, but wrapped up in that is that, you know, he's he's like, it's not your fault. Mm-hmm. It's not the ground's fault that man is the way that he is. I'm not going to take it out on you. Yeah, that's interesting. So then we come to Genesis chapter 9, and it says that God blessed Noah and his sons, and he gave them a statement that should sound familiar. He says, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth and on all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. Um, That sounds very much like what he told Adam and Eve back in the first creation, which is fill the earth and subdue it, essentially. You are, you know, Mm -hmm. you're going to be in charge of everything around here. So this really is his statement of saying, Noah, you're the new Adam. Yeah, there's there's a lot of people who say that the cultural mandate, those those commands that were given to Adam stopped because the world was fallen afterward. Mm-hmm. No. So here you have God in a fallen world who's doubling down and saying, be fruitful, multiply, uh, subdue the earth, fill it and subdue it. And um, what he does, he goes even beyond that where when he first gave the commission to Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve together were called to rule over creation but what has changed now in Genesis 9, if you remember, we've just come out of this season where man's injustice to man had been so disgusting. That was not a part of the original design. When God gave the commandments to Adam and Eve, he didn't talk about you know, how you treat one another. But from, from this, he goes forth and he starts saying, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. And so then he gets, gives this comment in verse 6 where he says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And so there's the repetition of man being created in his image. There's the be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. We had all the according to their kinds earlier in the passage. But here is something new. Now God is giving mankind the capacity to establish justice. And so what he says is, if if you have, you know, remember uh, um, the evil Lamech who's boasting about killing people and everything. Now God is saying, okay, now you're to have dominion over the justice of men as well. Hmm. Um, hmm. And so that comes into play. This is a new addition to the cultural mandate um, where we see justice. And that's very clearly, you know, capital punishment. Hmm. Which, by the way, there's a difference, just as a quick side note on that. When God establishes capital punishment, that does not give me, Sam Smith, the right to take a life. Vengeance does not belong to me. Vengeance doesn't belong to you. But what the scriptures do, and it starts here, is they do commission governing authorities to to wield the sword. Mm -hmm. They are the ones to establish justice. And then the question about um, 
capital punishment or not. That's that's a debate for ethics, but God clearly opens that as a possibility here. But it's to be done um, by institutions. I think it's interesting that the, that one of the first things that's said to Noah after he comes out of the ark, he says, "Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you." And as I gave mm-hmm. you the green plants, I give you everything. But then he says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Um, there's been a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, of dietary stuff that goes on, obviously, in the, the law. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of, I can eat this, you can't eat that. These things are clean. These things aren't clean. Um, I, to, I just think it's interesting that prior to the flood, apparently, um, people didn't eat animals it's like up up until the flood and we're talking about you know hundreds of years maybe longer that that mm-hmm. they were vegetarians that yeah i mean that seems to be the implication here isn't that doesn't that strike you at some point like wow it's like it, the world as god created it didn't have bacon i'm like that to me is a <laughs> difficult concept you know it's like doesn't god does god dislike pork fat is that you know I mean, but but you also remember you go back to the story of Cain and Abel, and what is Abel offering? He's you know, offering he's offering animals. up animals yep. and fat portions. It was just, I suppose, there was something about that that seemed to be reserved for the Lord alone. I, that's, but it, it is interesting that Abel raised animals for what reason? Why did people raise animals back then if they weren't going to eat them? Mm. Why did they? Why was there animal husbandry? I understand there were animals around because there was life, but the fact that Abel was a was a shepherd basically he was engaged in animal husbandry would imply that they were some kind of a, a of a product. They were being groomed for something. Maybe yeah. it was, I don't know. Maybe it was clothing. Maybe they they was they took the. Maybe, maybe they maybe they had the same perspective. Yeah, maybe they just used it for wool and bones and things like that. But the idea of eating an animal would have been too revolting or whatever. You know, like cannibalism would be for That's us. That's interesting. You know, yeah, this um, is interesting. I, I don't know that it means anything. I, I, don't I, I don't know that it means anything. But it's one of those things that sticks out to me every time I get through this story. I just am, I, this. I'm, I'm imagining Homer Simpson drooling, going talking about yeah, bacon. life without bacon is tough. You know. <laughs> now, what do you think it means when God says to Noah, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood? I know that that in terms of the law, there was always this thing of you you had to – there was this rule about eating things that had that had blood. You couldn't eat like raw meat or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think – what do you think God was warning or saying to Noah about don't eat something with its, its life in it, its blood in it? What was that – what's that about? Yeah, there, there, there's something precious about blood to the Lord. You know, it's that's what cries out from the ground. Mm. You know, when Abel's blood is shed, mm. um, I, I think it might have to do something with cruelty. You know, the idea of eating something while it's alive, or you know, that, that's just even a little bit more revolting mm. morally. So, hmm. um, so being uh, maybe it's maybe it's about being humane in the way that you take care of animals, consume right. things. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's yeah, possible. Uh, it's just interesting, you know. I mean, it, they, you know, that that became. I'm winging it. Yeah, it's just you know, but you know that became kind of a big deal later on. So then God establishes His covenant with Noah. Um, he says He establishes His covenant with you and with your offspring after you, and not just with that, but with every living creature—birds, livestock, beast of the earth, as many as came out of the ark. For every beast of the earth. He establishes this covenant with them again that he's not going to destroy 
you know, all of creation again. I find it oddly touching in some way that that mm-hmm. God is it's it's not just people. It's like God loves his creation too. You know, he mm-hmm. values yeah. all life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you get to the 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 law, when Moses is on Sinai getting the laws from God and God delivers the Sabbath laws, there's Sabbath laws for animals, there's Sabbath laws for the land, crops. I mean, everything is to have its season of rest. Um, so, yeah, God is very much concerned about his creation. That's why we, earlier when you were saying, you know, that the word behind that, I will not curse the ground again, it's dishonor. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably right. Like he's actually showing honor to his creation um, in addition to just not, you know, bringing a judgment upon man. Mm-hmm. It's bringing honor to his creation. I think that's right. So then he establishes the rainbow as a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. I think that that's something that uh, that gets lost. You know, we, we've rainbows, I think, in our culture these days have become too associated with lucky charms or something. It's like there's a <laughs> pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It represents <laughs> luck or something like that. Um, it, there's a lot of different, you know, and there's there's cultural things about rainbows and I think that it's kind of cool when we see the rainbow to just remember that that's that actually is God's promise that he's not going to destroy the earth mm-hmm. again. Not until he's ready to yeah. not until he's ready to take us into the to the new heavens, the new earth. Yeah, there's something cool in Revelation it talks about how his throne when he's sitting on his throne in heaven that above it is encircled by a rainbow. Um, and he he loves that symbol, and I think part of the reason is he loves the diversity of it, all the different colors and the beauty that come out of it, all the all the ways that light can hit a prism and make all this beauty. You know, he puts that as as kind of a crown over his throne. But one of one of the best things about the rainbow that I absolutely love is. It's it's a weapon of war. When it says I have set my bow in the cloud, it's it's not it's literally like a weapon of war. I've set my bow in the cloud. And what's wonderful about that is when you look up into the sky after a storm where where it's just rained, mm-hmm. right? Where it's like, oh no, is it gonna flood again? The waters are coming down, you know, and he sets his bow in the cloud. The bow is always pointed up. Mm. And so that means two things, which is really, really powerful. Mm. God is taking his weapon of war, and he's pointing it away from the earth, which shows his mercy. Mm. But the thing that's more amazing, and it gives me goosebumps to think about it, is when God sets his weapon of war in the cloud, it's not pointed at earth. It's pointed at heaven. Right. And so the next one who's going to bear the judgment is in heaven. Mm. And Christ is going to be the one who bears the next flood. Mm. He's going to be the one who takes the wrath so that the people of God can have safety. Mm. So that rainbow, when you think about it in those terms, I mean, it's precious. It's not just God announcing, I won't judge the earth again, you know, and, and with a flood, but the next victim's going to be in heaven, mm. and that became Christ. That's just cool. That is cool. That is cool. I I confess I hadn't really thought of it that way, but actually the, the imagery of a bow, I can see that. That's cool. I I will confess that I stole that from Jesus Storybook Bible for children. You know what? It's <laughs> I, sometimes and it's brilliant. It is brilliant. I was saying sometimes those children's books are amazing. So then, after the the sign of the covenant, then God starts talking about the sons of Noah and Noah being a man of the soil and some things that happen here in the beginning. How does this connect back to if if Noah's the new Adam, if this is the new creation? What mm-hmm. are we seeing here at the end of chapter nine? 
Well, at the end, you see Noah has his fall. You know, we talked about how God has just brought forth this new creation. There's all the patterns, you know, of, of the days of creation. Then he gives the cultural mandate again, be fruitful and multiply. And it says, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard, which is pretty – it's a garden except for fruit, right? So right. here you have this new Adam figure that's in a vineyard. And it says when – and this is something you leave out of all the children's stories, by the way. But it says – I remember reading this, and I was like, I never heard this. But <laughs> it says when, <laughs> when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. So Noah gets drunk and passes out naked inside of his tent. And it says Ham, who's one of the three sons um, of Noah, comes into the tent. He's the father of Canaan, and he sees his father's nakedness and runs out and tells his two brothers outside – well, Shem and Japheth, back then it was a – in ancient cultures, it's a deep shame to see uh, your father's nakedness. Right. It talks about that in lots of ancient cultures. So Ham runs out and he's like, "Yo, guys, you got to come see this. And he wants to mock and magnify his father's shame. But Japheth and Shem take a covering, a blanket, and they walk backwards so as to not see their dad. And they lay the blanket over him to protect his integrity. Mm-hmm. Um and so when Noah wakes up and he sees this, he's infuriated um, that Ham would have done this. Hmm. And so let me just read this real quick. So in one of my, my commentaries that I read, it says this, uh, while naked exposure to your children would be embarrassing today, this would have been utterly humiliating in the ancient Near Eastern culture. In fact, this would have been treated like an act of incest. In fact, some of the commentaries question whether or not Ham did something inappropriate to Noah. I'm not getting into that, but you can go read those commentaries if you want. But in the law of Moses, God declares the nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover, uncover. and any violator was to be banished from their communities. That's in Leviticus 18. And so this is a serious, serious thing. And so Noah's going to wake up and he's going to lay a curse on Canaan. So, you, I mean, I, my guess is he's seen Ham's behavior, who is his son, and he sees how it's nasty, and he's probably seen the behavior of Canaan. And so he's going to announce a curse that will fall on one of Ham's children as a result of this wickedness, which creates a lot of questions. But let's take a step back, and I want you to see, like, all of the similarities. You know, Adam is the father of every single person alive on the planet today. So is Noah. Adam makes his home in a garden. Noah makes his home in a vineyard. Adam has personal interaction with God. Noah has personal interaction with God. Both of them receive the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Both of them have animals brought to them. So for Adam, the animals come to him and they're to be named. For Noah, the animals come to him to board the ark. Adam is going to fall how? He eats the fruit. Right. How does Noah He fall? drinks the fruit. He falls by <laughs> drinking right. the fruit. Yeah. Adam, the moment that he eats of the fruit, what does he realize? He's naked. He's utterly ashamed in his nakedness. Yeah. And guess what? No, after he drinks from the fruit, he's ashamed of his nakedness. God comes and mercifully provides a covering for Adam and Eve. Shem and Japheth mercifully come and provide a covering for Noah. Adam has three sons. Noah's going to have three sons. Adam has a son named Cain that's going to be cursed. Noah's going to have a grandson named Canaan that's going to be cursed. And so these two stories are like you know parallel train tracks. And what you're to walk away with, Noah, the righteous man on earth, the most righteous man on earth when the flood comes, 
he fails. Mm-hmm. And God is going to keep lifting up these heroes again and again, and every one of them is going to fail again and again and again. And it's setting your minds to understand that the redemption of mankind, we're so messed up, this is going to be a God-sized task. Mm. Like God is going to have to become a man to come in to break this pattern and to be a hero that can redeem all of this. Mm. And there, there's two other things that are that are cool in here. I don't know if you want to – if we have time for them. I got, make them really brief if you sure. want. Sure. Um, but you, you have Noah who falls by drinking and you have Adam who falls by eating. eating. Right. And when Christ comes, eating and drinking, it makes a big deal of that. And when he goes to communion to give his life, he reverses you know, those actions that led to great falls and communion – those actions now are a means of grace mm. um, that bring you salvation. If you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you have eternal life. Mm. Um, and when you partake, in First Peter 3, we're told that the flood is actually a picture of baptism. And you can see that in here where, you know, even down to where the dove coming down upon the waters to announce salvation, you know, when Jesus is baptized in the Jordan, we're told that he goes down into the waters. And remember, Jesus is the true ark, and him is where salvation is. And so he goes down into the waters, and it says that the heavens open, and the Holy Spirit descends as a dove upon Jesus. And that's a picture going back to the ark. And what it's saying is there is a new beginning coming. God is about to make all things new. Hmm. Um, and that's what baptism symbolizes. Mm. Baptism is always a picture of a death to your former way of life and a resurrection into a new life. And so the flood is a death of the old world and a new birth into a new world. But sadly, the people are going to screw it up and they're going to die again. <laughs> um, Jesus is the one who holds the key to death. He's the only one who can triumph over death. So the last thing that we have is we have Noah who uh, pronounces a curse on, he says, cursed be Canaan, uh, servant of servants shall he mm-hmm. be to his brothers. So that's the son of Ham, the descendants of Ham. Then he says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Well, for starters, the Canaanites are known for like the worst, most wicked abominable worship practices. I mean, they did cult prostitution and child sacrifice. I mean, they're really, really wicked. But when you get to Genesis 10, you find that the descendants of Canaan, and and let me read some of them to you, and this will sound familiar, I promise, hopefully. Mm -hmm. But the descendants of Canaan include the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. So you'll find that in Genesis 10, 15 to 17. Mm -hmm. When you get to the point when Joshua, hundreds of many hundreds of years later, when Joshua comes in to take the promised land, this is God's promise. Tell me if this sounds familiar. He will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. So all of the descendants of Canaan come to dwell in the promised land. They become the, the sworn enemies of Israel, and Joshua will have to defeat all of them. Um, and so it's it's prophetic. These are going to be – the descendants of Canaan are going to be notoriously difficult mm. 
for the nation of Israel. They're going to be the enemies of Israel. So we've come to the end of the story of Noah and the flood. And uh, next week, what are we going to be getting into? So next week, we're going to be getting into the descendants of Noah. So you have three of them, the three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so Genesis 10 leads you into a chapter that's called the Table of Nations. And it's basically asking, okay, where did they go? What tribes or nations did they found? And so when we leave, it's kind of like you get the impression that Shem and Japheth are going to be, you know, the, the favored sons. Sure. And, and Ham and Canaan, his son, are going to be out. But what we'll find next week, and this is just awesome, we'll talk about the Tower of Babel and Nimrod's kingdom. But we'll also get into the Table of Nations. And what we'll see is that the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, all of them, Jesus is going to redeem in a really, really beautiful and profound way. So you're you're going to want to hear that. It's really good. So God, Jesus, like he redeems all of the curses of of the fall. He redeems Cain and Abel. He redeems the flood. Now he's going to redeem the children of Noah. And it's it's awesome. Okay. Well, we'll let that stand as our last word for this week. We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, that it's been profitable for you. If you'd like to get in touch with us, that uh, we have an email address that you can write to, out of water at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, vistachurch.com, which is also where you can find all the back episodes of Out of Water at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water. Or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, or on Spotify. We'll be back with more next week. We look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water. <laughs>